Welcome to the Director's Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the planets orbiting the Now Playing Network. Here on each episode of Director's Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their legendary classics, cult favorites, and hidden gems amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and concepts or relation to other films can come up when you look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey, an action-packed journey this time, as we take a look at director Andrew Davis. Howdy, folks. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we wanted to go and give a little bit of attention to this guy for uh, numerous reasons, some of which we had at first, and then as we discovered more of his films. Andrew Davis was something that I picked up on when um, he made his film The Fugitive. I was really impressed by it. And I have been a fan of action movies all my life. Like, me and my friends would constantly hang around the uh, Harlem Corners Theater in the southwest side of the Chicago suburbs, where they had dollar movie nights. And they would have films by Seagal and Von Damme and Schwarzenegger. And then I found this remarkable coincidence that many of these films had a quality to them, and they were being directed by Andrew Davis. So I'm like, who is this guy? And the more I looked into this guy's work, the more I thought, well, this is something really kind of special because my favorite kind of movie experience is movies that are better than they have any right to be. And as I think we'll demonstrate over this episode, that has happened again and again in different ways with the work of this guy. Now, Brad, what would be your take on the Davis experience? Well, well, we are coming to uh, this director from kind of opposite poles because while I have seen The Fugitive prior, it's the only Andrew Davis film I'd seen. So all Mm -hmm. the other movies that we're going to be discussing, I've seen for the first time here. And I don't have that inherent love of the action genre. Certainly there are certain action films that I've really enjoyed, but I didn't grow up on the Rambos and the Commandos. I was more into the sci-fi and horror end of things when I was a kid. Uh, so, And in fact, I had never before uh, this week seen a Steven Seagal film or a Chuck Norris film. So we are, like I said, we're, we're coming at this from different perspectives. Yes, pretty much the comprehensive spectrum, <laughs> because I am in my own particular way. I'm a Steven Seagal fan. And I'm an unabashed Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. And I like a, a, a lot of moments from Chuck Norris films. Almost none of it having to do with the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... The guy can make a nice roundhouse kick. <laughs> right. And I think we both have another bias that we need to share uh, coming into this in that we are both Chicagoans and long time Chicagoans. Long, long times. For me, I've, I grew up in the suburbs. I've been living in, in the city most of my adult life. And I've been like uh, 
longtime Southwest Sider and still actually on the South Side, just barely, uh, up to today. Yeah, so I think we get a charge when we see our city lovingly portrayed on film. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Davis, more than any other director on a consistent level, loves to film Chicago. Almost every film we're going to talk about is going to be shot there. And we're probably going to have a few uh, diversions into a little bit of uh, Chicago love. So uh, just uh, imagine it's your own hometown and uh, (laughs) share our excitement. (laughs) Uh, Yes. uh, Translate like the uh, affection New Yorkers have for the taking of Pelham one, two, three, and move it a little, make it a little more Midwestern. And it'll be, give a hint of us uh, uh, geeking out on the Chicago that's presented in the work of Andrew Davis. And also, I want to point out that the Chicago thing is one of these virtues of Mr. Davis that I really enjoy is his phenomenal loyalty because he was grew, grew up and was ra- and raised in Chicagoland. And he has an affection for the city and the people in it and the people who have started off from his very first movie. And there's a particular sense of loyalty and dedication that I was very surprised flows through all of his films. Sometimes we talk about common themes and common ideas, but this is a person who has a common setting and a common cast that seems to keep showing up. Right, and it starts right from his first film. Right, his first film was 1978's Stony Island. It's a low-budget, intimate look at the members of a struggling R&B band based in the Southside Stony Island, Chicago neighborhood. Andrew Davis explores the dive bars and clubs of Chicago's music scene, as well as the neighborhood flavor of the musicians' real lives as they try to put a band together. Well, I think this is a real hidden gem. It's uh, very obscure and uh, difficult to find. But if you can get a hold of it, especially if you enjoy either Chicago and or rhythm and blues music, it's a treat. It's it's filmed in this very low-key realist style. There's not a lot of plot. There's not a lot of unusual things that happen it's more like this fly on the wall watching of everyday life Mm -hmm. except what we're watching is this band forming and this band trying to make it and one of the great things about it is they are they end up being an excellent band it is so so fun if you're into um, Chicago, if you're into R&B, if you're into um, the kind of observational 
new wave style that was um, most represented in Chicago previously by Haxel Wexler in Medium Cool, with which Andrew Davis worked for a time. Right, and Wexler was a mentor to Davis. Yeah, that feeling of authenticity of the neighborhoods and the musicians and their attempts to um, uh, play music, have rehearsal spaces, and get gigs is just so lovingly represented. And when these members get together... It's ju- it's astounding to behold because this is some smoking R and B, blues, rocking music. It seems that it must have been impossible that uh, the folks making the Blues Brothers movie uh, didn't get a look at this because even yeah. though the styles aren't different, this isn't a comedy, this isn't a uh, an action film. But as far as its treatment of the music. You can tell that the Blues Brothers was taking some notes from this. Oh, definitely, definitely. I would go and call this like the neorealist Blues Brothers, right. in fact. <laughs> because it's very much the subject is to get a great band back together. Uh, except it's not a high concept. It's just something that the musicians want to do for the sheer love of the music. And But it's such a re- great collection of different musicians. There's a part of the plot points involved getting a, a more of a hillbilly family who's, who, who's one guy, one member of the family is really amazing on the saxophone. And just getting him into the fold is one of the directions that the story takes. And like, also like Blues Brothers, the music is to- incredibly infectious. And you just want to, if it was just a concert movie of these songs, it would be, it's tremendously worth watching. But on top of that, you actually get into these wonderfully gritty Chicago environments, like from Stony Island and Calumet, up like out to the near north side, um, over out through the Art Institute, down to the, pu- down to the Pullman District, um, and the L is elevated tracks that go through the loop of Chicagoland is very prominently used, not for the last time in uh, Davis's work. And it's all just delivered with this great sense of affection for the city in the same way that the Blues Brothers does. And the other thing they have in common is this sense of uh, racial diversity and inclusion because Stony Island, for those of you who don't know, is a South side uh, neighborhood in, in the city. And what we're seeing a multiracial band come together. Most of it's through the eyes of uh, the guitarist who's played by, uh, by Davis's Richard, own brother. That's right. Yeah. Richard Davis. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you see the black players and the white players and their different backgrounds, and all coming together through the music. In addition to all the lovingly filmed, iconic Chicago spots, you feel like you're getting into the nitty-gritty of the neighborhoods, too, and of you know little back-alley places. One of the uh, places the band uh, has to make some contacts in is this pet store. <laughs> so you see them uh, making deals all around these fish tanks, and uh, who's... Who's their contact but a then-unknown uh, Dennis Franz? <laughs> yeah. Here's how um, early this movie is. Skinny Dennis Franz. <laughs> right. 
but he's just as ornery as we all know him from from NYPD Blue and so forth. <laughs> and but there is a level of no matter what neighborhood it is, there's just this level of great affection and sympathy for the people within it and the music they go and play. You get to see these jam sessions, these di- these different kinds of rehearsals and these and as different people get recruited they just try and do sort of auditions as they play what they they play what they can some are even like even just playing on the street corner and there's a real fun detail where they play on the garage of a funeral home and the main manager of the funeral home he's totally into it he's just <laughs> he's he's grooving to it and even the owner of the funeral home has a measure of sympathy towards these guys and there and when he hears them playing Right, and this funeral home uh, starts to play an even bigger role in the film. Most of the film uh, doesn't really have a lot of plot going on. And in fact, I I think it's better off when it doesn't because there is a little sequence. It's not a long sequence, probably about 10 minutes, that, that takes us out of the mode the film has been so solid in. And it's after one of the band members dies and... He's very poor, so they can't afford a uh, nice burial, uh, even though he worked for a funeral home. And so they do this little uh, switcheroo game with another uh, dead body. So this this is the one moment of the film that I thought rang a little false. And again, it's it's such a, a, a short bit that it didn't bother me in terms of the entire movie. But it, it, it does lead to another fun moment, which is the actual funeral service. Right. Where they bring in one of their New Orleans buddies to, <laughs> yeah. put, a, to put a New Orleans flavor to, to, to the music. And as those of you who are familiar with uh, New Orleans funerals know, they can become a bit of a party. Yes, this, this guy is a hoot. He sort of comes across as if like uh, uh, Danny McBride is playing Alistair Crowley <laughs> with um, uh, with these hookish kind of eyebrows and a cape at all times and a very distinctive kind of patter that he does to, to everything he says. Yeah, it looked to me like he was the third lost member of Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he helps lead this big kind of funeral procession that happens where people... So- and the movie makes kind of the jump from being like neorealism to musical magical realism as suddenly people bring out their brass sections from out inside the inside this church and uh, start playing off the um uh the guy who's passed on as he's his coffin moves down the aisles and it's something that isn't going for realism obviously but it it works as magic as musical magic for sure and that's is kind of the way Stony Island really just works as a as a love letter to great music, a level and a, to the great environments of the city and the just the struggles of these musicians just to really put this music together. It's I very much kind of put it akin to it as the Chicago version of the first half of the commitments. You know, another film about a low uh, about people in like lower class environments who just want to make some smoking great rhythm and blues. Except these actually are real musicians. Many, many of the cast were actual like 
legends in the Chicago blues and R&B scenes at the time. And they existed for a real band uh, for a period, the Stony Island Band. Yes, which has a um, record actual, it's available on Spotify and on vinyl. Like you said, Brad, it doesn't have a lot of drama. And when it tries to do plot, it's it gets a little silly. But as it becomes more of a path of people getting closer together and making music together and building on that feeling of uplift that you can get when you hear a great band. It's a wonderful trip, a wonderful experience for anyone who loves that kind of music and Chicagoland. So, I mean, I, I, adore this film yeah this is uh, one of my favorites uh, of all of davis's and i really appreciate that you know if we hadn't been covering andrew davis i might never have run across this film so that's one of the fun things for us about the director's club is finding these these lost gems exactly exactly when i'm watching the first film of this director known for action and i see this musical, neorealistic Chicago Testament document. It just, damn. I'm so happy that this uh, exploration offered the opportunity to get this film that was unknown to myself as well. And I guess this next film was uh, pretty much just as unknown. I did not get a chance to, to see his follow-up to Stony Island, but you did. Yeah, his next film explores a different genre entirely, the slasher film, in his 1983 movie, The Final Terror. You're with your baby And you're parked alone On a summer night You're deep in love But you're deeper in the woods You think you're doing alright Did you hear that voice? Did you see that face? Or was it just a dream? This can't be This focuses on a group of forest rangers who uh, are taking girls on a secluded area out in the woods and having to deal with the angry um, degenerate who is uh, driving them there and is supposed to pick them up later. What could go wrong in that situation? (laughs) Well, this movie had uh, a cast of then-unknowns, right, who went on to be kind of knowns. This is... Why one of the biggest surprises I saw when I was taking a look at this at this film was the cast is astounding. In fact, this is actually what uh, got the movie to finally be released. This was a um a Samuel Z. Arkoff a production, and this is a guy who's very much known for exploitation films and and uh, and B movies through say Z movies, um. And this one movie actually was took a while to get released, but part of the reason it did was because the the young star, the young actors at the time included Rachel Ward, Daryl Hannah, and Adrian Zmed. And those guys, as these people erupted in popularity in the eighties, like uh, they thought, well, now let's go get this movie get this movie released. But it also features some other really cool uh, performances as well because the um, one of the kids is played by um, 
Lewis Smith, who's most well-known for cult fans as Perfect Tommy from The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Um, the guy running this operation, I use that word loosely, is Michael Metcalf, who is well-known as Niedermeyer, the, um, uh, the obnoxious wannabe cadet in a- Animal House. And the angry, bug-eyed, maniacal, degenerate bus driver I mentioned earlier, none other than a very young Joe Patoliano. Who we might be seeing again. He does a great job being an, an absolute maniac named Eggers. He takes offense at an instant. He's prone to just angry yet strangely giggle-filled rants. He does these various things to mess the operations of the forest rangers as they go on their trip and provides a ton of energy that sparks the movie before any of the actual um, slashing goes on. So it sounds like Joey Pants doing what Joey Pants does best. <laughs> right. As a character, actor, um, energy movie enhancer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, how does it work as a, the, the movie as a whole work as a slasher? Is this uh, in the mode of the ones uh, of the period that were so popular, like the Friday the 13th series? You see some things that kind of bring out um, echoes of Andrew Davis's other work. For example, for a slasher movie, it's not that slashy. Not a lot of people um, are dispatched in the film. Okay. And so much so that when they actually did re-release it, they literally had to uh, tap in uh, an opening scene of having two people get brutally murdered after they fall off a motorbike just, just to add the body count. <laughs> <laughs> but it does hit a lot of it does hit a lot of the buttons of the slasher genre in terms of uh, people getting killed in the middle of the sexual act. Check cabin in the woods. Check um, uh, people who uh, the menace who has some powers to teleport. Uh, check um, the uh, hand grasping from off screen, but it turns out is just one of the other people. Uh. It, it, Everything it do- but a cat. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It has a bunch. It has a bunch of those things. So it is. If it was just that, it would be merely a minor attempt to try to uh, work the same kind of formula that was made such a template in the Friday the Thirteenth. There is some things that it does a little differently. One of which is its setting. It is filmed like on the northern part of California, like very close to the Oregon border. So it's set with these gigantic redwood trees and these rather vast expanse of forests. And it transverses the landscape uh, quite more of an extent than you see these slasher films, which are usually trying to held in like basically one location. Here the geography changes quite, uh, quite often, including a river rapids trek and a walk across this like what looks like this big plat long platform of wood so that that's pretty interesting in its setting also when you first see what the threat is it's done in a measure of extraordinary subtlety for this kind of film <laughs> uh, when it's a something that moves that shouldn't let's put it let's put it that way and, and not from a location you expect that is handled that handles a couple of times in the movie 
effectively every single time. And you know how, like, so many of these films in the 70s were thinly veiled metaphors for kind of, like, the angst that people experienced in Vietnam? Right. Like, that was, that's kind of a common theme and that brought out about a lot of this horror. This movie takes it a little more to the surface than you would expect. There's some things that almost come across like it's uh, apocalypse now, in fact. Hmm. That yeah. is unexpected. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and a lot of cases with films such as this you can forgive a lot if it ends well this movie ends great davis saved an effect where some somebody gets killed that is amazing to behold especially on the limited budget super super captivating and how he he has to put a camera in a place you totally don't expect if uh, effectively brutal and then ends on this kind of very weird atmosphere. It's a great whoa moment that in a in in a horror movie. So so we'll we'll leave a smile to any gore hound and action person's face at the end of it. But with his next film, Andrew Davis does a template that he's going to be known for throughout his career. Chuck Norris is a tough Chicago cop with a martial arts background in 1985's Code of Silence. Not only must he take down the leaders of a drug syndicate after a botched sting operation, but corruption in the police force itself means he won't know who to trust. Now, here's a great case of where our experiences could not be more different, because if it's the first Chuck Norris film you see, what were your impressions of seeing it? Well, it was really two films. It, it was the solid, though not up to standards he would later reach, uh, action film, well done, good set pieces, strong supporting cast, uh, interesting story. That, that's kind of one aspect of this film. Then there's Chuck Norris. Mm-hmm. Chuck Norris How is, would you describe his acting style? Uh, non-existent. <laughs> uh, see, I, I almost... I, I don't even want to go with he's not a good actor because he doesn't seem to be attempting acting. He's mostly attempting standing there. <laughs> delivering his lines, doing his action stuff. You know, he can shoot a gun. He has a couple fight scenes where obviously he, you know, you could tell he's a, a martial arts expert and, and whatnot. But no matter what's happening, the man's sitting there with the same dumb expression on his face. And I'm trying to figure out, because again, this is the first and only Chuck Norris I've seen. 
how he not only uh, got about a dozen movies out there, but was on a TV show for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. I have to admit, I was lucky enough to be here with you when you, we saw uh, Code of Silence together. And there's a great moment where he's upbraided by the angry police lieutenant who's talking about how much he's a rogue cop who plays by his own rules. And Norris's complete and total non-reaction got you to go, Jesus fucking Christ, this guy. <laughs> I, I'm, no, no, I'm used to actors reacting, acting, making some sort of expression to... Bad make, acting, to even. bad acting, just something to make us interested in watching you so you know it's like this hole in the middle of the movie yep. uh and and luckily you have some good supporting work you've got uh dennis farina yeah who was uh you know famous chicago actor and actually was a real life uh chicago cop mm -hmm. and when he was making this film was just as he was making this uh transition and yeah he's got a small supporting role but he tries his best to bring all the authenticity that mm -hmm. Chuck Norris is completely incapable yeah. of. You've got a, a nice uh, further uh, supporting cast of uh, Andrew Davis regulars. There, there's a couple fun scenes. Probably my favorite scene has nothing to do with the, the rest of the plot, but Which it's would based be? on a real-life incident where uh, these two uh, crooks decide to rob a bar but they've uh, it, they've ended up robbing a cop bar. So when they walk into this bar full of cops, they pull their guns, and then every patron throughout the rest of the bar pulls their guns on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very fun scene because the way they just are joshing at these guys, and the two guys are bickering over which one was the bigger idiot for making this decision, and it's it's super enjoyable. And it's also just so wonderfully affects like the flavor of the Chicago police in which this movie is chock full of Chicago flavor, almost as much as what Stony Island had. Just you just get this real loving look at the Chicago and neighborhoods. And there's a great opening sequence between two tenements that is built up and they, and Davis just does an exemplary job of setting up a potential police thing and it's not quite Rafifi level I wouldn't go that far but it's but it is really effectively moving in through like a, a drug deal going on between these two uh, these two rival organizations and then the cops some posing as sanitation workers some surveilling from across the way and just is really really nicely put together in just escalating the tension as the stakeout uh, as the stakeout commences. And yeah, even leads to, sorry, and even leads to a John Woo-esque, like, conflagration of uh, hundreds of bullets flying in pow and cocaine powder flying everywhere in slow motion. There is that, although I, I don't think it reaches John Woo levels of, of style. But, right. But it does have a number of cool set pieces, both utilizing Chicago 
locations. You have a fight on top of an L train. Yeah. That uh, just on a stunt level is impressive. And culminates in a dive into the Chicago River that flows through the center of the downtown of the city. Right. And you also have a chase down Lower Wacker Drive, which is one of the major underground passageways that curves through Chicago. And so you have these five or six scenes throughout the film that are fun that are that are, that are good action sequences and and this is Davis's first foray into what's going to become his regular style but he hasn't quite figured out pacing and how to make a cohesive whole of a movie yet so what i found with this film was you had aside from the few points where the film kind of wakes up and, and, and grabs you by the collar, a film that for a lot of its running time is actually pretty boring. Okay. My perspective obviously comes from seeing a lot more Chuck Norris films in the sense of any <laughs> Chuck Norris films, as well as some, uh, uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, that's the rest assured Brad. He has never acted in any one of these films. <laughs> What you see with Chuck Norris is what you get. I like what Davis does with his completely Easter Island imitating (laughs) unexpressive self because he's meant to be a stiff in and around him is put this whole story of police corruption. And one of the things that I recommended for you when you were going, I don't get what the big deal is, Alice, I said, watch any 30 minutes of any other Chuck Norris movie. And when you see what Chuck Norris, a usual Chuck Norris movie is, which is that he, uh, something happens to him and he spends time in kicking increasing amounts of ass and beating and killing more and more people until he finally gets to the main bad guy. That's a good percentage of it. Mm-hmm. And there's no subtlety. There's no uh, there's no um, attempts to shade anything whatsoever. So when I, and that's where I came from, from seeing uh, films like uh, Invasion USA and, uh, and Missing in Action. That's the kind of pulp that I was really enjoying. I love watching Chuck Norris just kick ass the guy and, and, uh, beat up on a whole bunch of people around and with a total roundhouse kick style and how no matter how angry people get at him he's his implacability <laughs> is, is something that i actually find a little charming so when i finally saw corner silence straight up i was blown away because this is a chuck norris movie with a plot with an actual point to it, which is about the uh, silence of fellow police officers to hide corruption in their midst. And how does, how do young police officers deal with it? How do jaded police officers deal with it? And how they look to Chuck Norris as in different ways as both like an attempted mentor or a, um, or an obstacle because of this very code of science. There's, a heck of a lot of actual drama in what I was thinking was just an action movie. But with the fight on top of the L and a great battle in a in a bar that I think is also very satisfying on an action level. Well, there is some drama, but uh, yeah, I don't want to I don't want people to think uh they're heading into something like uh, Serpico with action scenes or uh, <laughs> Prince of the City or any of the other great cop 
corruption movies. I mean, there, there's there's a story here. There there's a they do deal with a corrupt cop and him having planted uh, a gun on an innocent kid that he shot. Yeah, but which actually unfortunately becomes more relevant for for sure relevant. But for me, it was not handled in a way that I found thought-provoking it felt like very much a plot device like an excuse to make certain other things happen in the film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it the film sort of pulls away from this these like grubby chicago environments and these grubby po- uh, police decisions at the end which is kind of comes across like a cro- unfortunate combination of robocop and short circuit it gets so silly at the end with the RoboCop uh, yep. droid. I don't know. <laughs> yes. It eventually gets to the Chuck Norris end point of things where he is a one-man army and kicks ass all by his lonesome. Uh, and then with the rest of the cops going on congratulating him and him uh, cracking a smile, no, he's expressionless as he walks away. <laughs> <laughs> And from that, we lead to his next film, uh, Above the Law, in 1988. Steven Seagal is a tough Chicago cop with a martial arts background in 1988's Above the Law. Not only must he take down the leaders of a drug syndicate, any of this sounding familiar, but uh, along with his partner played by Pam Greer, he's going to have to face shady villains from his past as a CIA operative in Vietnam. So Andrew Davis can now be credited with introducing the world to Steven Seagal. Uh, thanks. So <laughs> I, I don't want to be, I, I was originally going to spend this time kind of ripping on Steven Seagal, but I, I got to tell you, after watching Chuck Norris, yeah. at least Steven Seagal is trying. Mm-hmm. Now, look, he can't act a it. <laughs> nope. But at least he does have different expressions. Mm-hmm. He does seem to realize he's in a movie and he seems to be interested in being in that movie despite him being out of his element, which, which is clearly uh, martial arts. Mm-hmm. Now, now, just for a little, uh, a little bit more of my background, because uh, it might sound like I, I don't like martial arts films, but my guy with martial arts is Jackie Chan. So this is kind of where I'm coming from for those kind of movies. Jackie Chan, Enter the Dragon, some of the Shaw Brothers Hong Kong films. So that's kind of the martial arts stuff I like. So when we're forced to follow this big dope who... <laughs> has no ability to create empathy, whether in action or non-action scenes, uh, kind of left in, in in a similar place as with 
Code of Silence, you've still got solid set pieces from Andrew Davis. Here's the thing. Andrew Davis has this basic level of competency that he never goes below. He knows how to film this stuff. So that both works in good ways and bad ways. Uh, the good way is that, you know, none of these films are unwatchably terrible. The The bad news there is that, you know, with with somebody of such limited abilities as Steven Seagal, uh-huh. you kind of hope for a cheese factor, maybe, that maybe you'll enjoy something because it's so bad it's good. They're not bad enough to be that either. See, now that's an interesting uh, point. I think you do have the finger on Andrew on one of Andrew Davis's abilities, an ability I find just actually pretty remarkable. And again, this is tied into how many Steven Seagal movies have you seen again? I have now seen two. Right. I've seen 75% of them. And this one is the, with one exception, and even that halfway, is the only one you can halfway take seriously as a police kind of action story. Every other Seagal movie has this, I, I have this real perverse appreciation, has the what I call the Seagal template. You know, sometimes we deride genres, especially ones like romantic comedies that have those beats, but sometimes you can get a perverted sense of just appreciating that you're going to have this checkbox, you know? Like how in the slasher movie, you got to have the people having sex and then they get killed immediately afterwards, right? When's that going to happen? <laughs> it's got to, because it's got to happen. Seagal movies manage to make, have their type, <laughs> which um, it, which hits like clockwork. Every Seagal movie has the Seagal speech where someone says, who is this guy? And they read off, his gigantic list of accomplishments. Every Seagal movie has the maneuver uh, has a move I call the Seagal maneuver, which I think Andrew Davis may have patented and has been a staple ever since, which is this. Steven Seagal may brutally beat the crap out of people, but he will never, ever, ever punch somebody first. Never. He's going, to, in fact, in Above the Law several times, he taunts people into attacking him. But when they do, they make that mistake, he goes completely um, uh, brutal on those guys. So that is a, that is a maneuver that was just uh, put to a fine point, starting with Above the Law, and ties in with Seagal's, what you say, uh, martial arts skill. Because Seagal, in a world of people who are trying to imitate Bruce Lee to the extent that they would have people who were renamed after him, like Bruce L.E.I. or Dragon Lee or what have mm-hmm. you, he is distinct. As opposed to Chuck Norris, who just does martial arts with no expression or personality whatsoever, Seagal has a distinct presence. And part of it is that he has this martial arts discipline of Aikido. And Aikido actually is mostly defensive. It's mm. kind of a little akin to judo in that you use a person's weight against them. And there's a reason why uh, Aikido is not, you don't see too many other Aikido masters. It's not because Seagal has mastered the whole (laughs) art form. It's because it's inherently defensive. So Andrew Davis took that like 
what could have been a liability and made it into a ability that got Seagal into having a movie career. So again, you know, like Seagal would say, you're welcome, I'm sure. <laughs> um, right. And so the films have that patented Seagal maneuver. And they also have this um, tendency in his movie titles to where you can always say, in the most dramatic fashion, the words, Steven Seagal is, right before the title. <laughs> Steven Seagal is above the law. And his next movie, Steven Seagal is hard to kill. <laughs> next one, Steven Seagal is marked for death. <laughs> and the one after that, Steven Seagal is out for justice. And another frustrating thing for me was uh, his partner was played by Pam Greer, yeah. who uh, I have loved in a number of black exploitation films from the 70s. Yeah. Again, a little more my, my genre than this kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I kept thinking, what's this guy doing being the lead when you've got Pam Greer right, right here? And she's more badass than he could dream of being. And we should <laughs> switch, switch this right up. <laughs> Oh man, I wish I felt. I wish I felt that way. Like uh, from films such as like Coffee and Foxy Brown. Like Pam Grier was so badass, and unfortunately, I find her just kind of neutered here, and she's kind of falls a lot away with like a lot of the a lot of the scenery. Right. Yeah. She's and, not. She doesn't get that kind of role here. She's really the standard partner in distress. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. She has a, she has one nice scene where she tells off, uh, some thugs who try to hit on her. But other yeah. than that, yeah. you don't get many Pam Greerisms. Yeah. yeah. You also have, uh, both in this and code of silence, the same villain, uh, Henry Silva, yep. who, if you don't know his name, you certainly know his face. He, he's one of the, uh, stable of, uh, general bad guys who just keep showing up again and again and again just because they got that bad guy face exactly he is just one of these classic character actors where he's just great at playing a bad guy in films from like that span over i want to say like three decades or more maybe even four uh two notable ones is that is that i would point out is that he was uh the main bad guy in this uh wonderfully delirious like live action G.I. Joe cartoon thing called Megaforce <laughs> with uh, featuring action hero Barry Bostwick uh, who pull- unleashes a classic line saying you know good guys always win even in the 80s <laughs> and I think one of his last roles was in the wonderful Jim Jarmusch film Ghost Dog as uh, one of the mafioso who uh, the ghost dog must battle and it's part of his samurai quest <laughs> So, so, and Silva, by the way, is not like Norris. He totally is great at chewing the scenery, acting slimy, and making you wish ill for him. Yes, his character trait is that he has these needles that he uh, mm-hmm. has some kind of po- uh, either truth slash torture serum in. Yep. He's, he's basically a human version of the black torture ball in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of takes a little of the cop movie and makes a little James Bondian uh, angle to it. <laughs> Which, to tie in on the James Bond, the idea of mystique where none necessarily exists, that one of the f- things I just really appreciate in kind of maybe not the right way is Stephen Seagal's whole deal about being like a secret uh, operative who's done all sorts of mysterious missions for the CIA in Vietnam. At the time... I don't know if you know this, Brad, but at the time, that was actually a rumor that Steven Seagal himself 
had done these secret missions. I did not know that. Yeah, <laughs> and it was, um, and he just decided to transfer into acting and bringing the skills of both subterfuge and martial arts and uh, real life action to the screen. That was part of the mystique that was brought in. In reality, he was the personal trainer for the most powerful agent in Hollywood. <laughs> and maybe it was part of a bet to make this guy an action star. But he saw something in Seagal. And to be quite honest, I think he did. It was something. I mean, the guy could not, you know, most his career is mostly direct to video now. But some people saw enough of having a, having like a unique persona about him. Even if said unique persona is incredible asshole. <laughs> but if you want to talk, but if, if you want to see more of Seagal, aside from what we're going to see about Andrew Davis and you and Brad, if you, especially if you want to see a movie whose badness becomes astounding, take a look at the movie Steven Seagal is on deadly ground. Oh, isn't that the environmentalist movie? It's the environmental movie that was co-written by Steven Seagal. Oh, I'm afraid. It has a 10-minute pro-environmental epilogue spoken by Seagal at the end. By the way, how does he help fight people for his pro-environmental message? By blowing up a whole oil field. Guess who his opponent is? I can't even begin. You can't. Michael Caine. Well, <laughs> Michael Caine of Jaws 4 and the Swarm fame. <laughs> yep, yep. And he lives down to that reputation in this one, which concludes with a spo slight spoiler alert, a fist fight, attempted fist fight with Seagal. Oh. Well, 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 well God, God bless you, Steven Seagal fans. You are carrying a torch where, where I will not go, uh, but uh, it but seems you, that... But <laughs> you miss out on so much, if, especially if you like movie atrocities in that <laughs> <Right>. film, <laughs> where uh, he beats the shit out of a guy, and then before he's about to knock him into unconsciousness, he then unleashes his worst weapon, pseudo-philosophy at him. Mm. He takes the guy and says, what's the measure of the man? And this guy with his bloody nose and his eyes dangling out of his socket says, it's to fight the struggle within himself before he passes out. <laughs> See, that is peak Seagal. You look at that film, you look at the films around it, such as Steven Seagal is out for justice. And then you look at Above the Law and you're just like, just like how I had the experience with Chuck Norris. You look at that and just go, oh my God. They gave this guy in a movie that you can somewhat take seriously. It's kind of a miracle. <laughs> and I guess the next miracle is that uh, Andrew Davis will, in his next film, start to work with real actors. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a definitely a diff distinct progression for him in his next film, a take on the spy movie explicitly with um, 1989's The Package.
in this movie, the Cold War is winding down as the U.S. and Soviets are on the brink of a historic nuclear weapons treaty. How this relates to Gene Hackman's special forces operative and his mission to escort Tommy Lee Jones's army deserter into prison while having everyone end up in Chicago will be revealed in this political espionage thriller. So now we're heading a little more into my wheelhouse just because Gene Hackman is my favorite actor. So I love seeing him on screen in anything. Now, I don't think this is one of his best performances, but he's a welcome presence. And frankly, Tommy Lee Jones ain't no slouch either. <laughs> mm -hmm. How do you think uh, Hackman compares here with, say, his other espionage role in Enemy of the State? Well, an enemy of the state, he's this mysterious mentor figure, but here he's an officer in over his head because we are getting information from other uh, parts of the film about the nature of the espionage, how these uh, military folks are trying to destroy the peace treaty, mm -hmm. but Gene Hackman is unaware of any of this. He thinks that he's just trying to take a prisoner into custody, and they don't have a lot of scenes together, but there's a, a scene on a, where Gene Hackman and Tommy Lee Jones, when Tommy Lee Jones is not who he seems to be, he's playing mm -hmm. a role, uh, they have this wonderful dialogue, and it's just... Uh, great to watch these uh, two actors bouncing off each other mm -hmm. because they're both two different flavors of cynicism mm -hmm. uh, hackman is cynical towards the kind of uh, demeanor that tommy lee jones has about the military industrial complex like when to uh, tommy lee has a really fun rant uh arguing against how Oh, you're just getting sent as a mercenaries, just your mercenaries for a particular country. And Hackman has a wry reply saying, oh, wow, looks like you read a book. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, Tommy Lee Jones is also just knocking Hackman's stature, like calling him a bo uh, equivalent of a Boy Scout and so on. And, and, and it's a great interaction. Uh, right, it almost makes you wish the two were sharing the screen through most of the film. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm there is a way of how, especially how what Tommy Lee Jones does through the film, which evokes uh, several kinds of um, political thrillers that uh, appear in the past that I don't want to mention with regards to its spoiling. But Davis does a really nice job in that one of just showing the procedure because he's on a very specific mission to get to sne basically sneaking into the United States. And the way they show him uh, meeting up with people, uh, doing a succession of outfits, <laughs> it uh, it's comes across as fascinating. You want to see more about what he does. Um, and there's a moment where he's gluing coins to a board that when you realize that purpose is also pretty a, pr a pretty cool reveal. This is the first of three Tommy Lee Jones appearances we're going to have in Andrew Davis films and they're all very distinct and different yes and I, I think you you see here with the package he's upping his game as far as the different buttons he can push mm -hmm. in, in the action movie genre mm -hmm. and when the action moves 
to Chicago, it's a lot of fun not only because we get to see more of our Chicago sites, but also because it provides uh, some grittiness that you don't always get in spy films that are in you know standard spy places everything is very much in the crowd yes and literally so in this uh really interesting scene halfway through where um people who are protesting um the uh gathering going on downtown are met by a bunch of um Illinois Nazis. Right. That le- I hate Illinois Nazis. I'm not a fan of those guys <laughs> either, you know. <laughs> but they uh, lead to a pitched confrontation, which has police on horseback, which cannot help but evoke the riot footage that Wexler captured as it actually happened during the 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago. This definitely has a you-are-there kind of feel to it which is its strength it's not quite up to uh up to par i think on the action set pieces with maybe just a few exceptions Mm -hmm. it's very deliberate it's 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 very much contrast with his earlier films because he really wants to make sure the plotting is on solid ground but I don't know that it gets the adrenaline going as hmm. much as he does in in his other films. Hmm. I yeah. I think I see where you're going off that, and it is a case of Davis upping his game because the stakes are a lot higher than the Chuck Norris or Steven Seagal stakes in those previous two movies. Mm -hmm. You can maybe make the argument they could scarcely be higher when you see what truly is at stake and what really brought in Tommy Lee Jones into the country. And that information, I think, is delivered in a really nicely efficient manner where you're seeing things get more and more and more um, apparent. And... And there's another character who sort of makes his way into the country. And when you realize his use, it's a really, I think it's a really fun and interesting reveal that adds a little extra layer of political espionage going on. But the biggest kind of uh, showcase action scene is something that features Hackman, at least the, the scene I'm thinking of, which harkens back. To, I like how you say that like he's a little more gritty, a little more of a working class dude than his character in Enemy of the State. Uh, there's a fun line where he sees a general uh, wandering around outside, and he tells the members of his squad, I see that guy? See, generals do a lot of thinking. That's why I don't want to ever want to become a general. <laughs> <laughs> so he needs to get somewhere, and needs to get, uh, and the, the way the best way to get he finds to get there is to jump in a car and do all the great driving skills that uh, uh, he showed in the French Connection, but this time on the streets of Chicago, uh, an equal amount of uh, uh, things crashed into and <laughs> and stuff spilled over. Uh, it's very much comes across as like don't give he may be a great actor, but don't give him a driving exam. <laughs> <laughs> And the movie has uh, enhanced like supporting cast because in addition to having Tommy Lee Jones as a really effective villain, it also features like Joanna Cassidy as this lieutenant colonel who's also the ex-wife of Gene Hackman's character. It has features um, John Hurd also in uh, a role as a shadowy figure. Dennis Franz is back. 
this mm-hmm. time after uh, having made a little bit more of a name for himself in Brian De Palma films, uh, he's a Chicago cop, a little bit of uh, typecasting there. Mm-hmm. But he has a really nice uh, interaction with Hackman, and, and really so does Joanna Cassidy. That, that's the, the good thing about this film, bringing in these actors, is that the chemistry between the actors really works. Mm-hmm. The chemistry is enhanced in a more active way where Davis er- Davis's earlier films are really good at showing these particular character notes out, but in the ba- and more of the background. But here, they play a more active part in the story. And it's uh, an, a really enjoyable addition to what uh, he's able to do. There's a really fun note, by the way, I want to point out when, when Dennis Franz gets shot in the movie and he's ta- he has to try and... Um, help out later which includes his jacket where the hole the bullet hole is still there ah. <laughs> by the way i noticed there's a bit of a pattern in that uh, uh our hero's partners are always getting shot but they never get killed wow. the same thing happens in code of silence mm-hmm. above the law and here so this is a little another little andrew davis quirk Oh, that's a that's a really good pickup you have on the tendency of, of Andrew Davis, and I also also want to point out that his use of the landscape, the Chicago landscape, works out really really nicely, especially by the end of this movie. Is in particular a station of the L tracks. I want to think it's the Adams and Wabash stop, which has a really big mural of mm-hmm. blinking lights that says "Peace on Earth." Something that's used to really nicely ironic effect in the events of the movie and framed as such in a really nicely done way. This is a solid film. He seems to be upping the stakes with uh, each subsequent film now, and that process is going to continue with his next movie, Under Siege. released in 1992 and takes place on the soon-to-be-decommissioned U.S. battleship, the USS Missouri. When terrorists, led by Tommy Lee Jones, stage a takeover, they gain control of the ship and its Tomahawk missiles, but they may not have counted on the ship's cook, again played by Steven Seagal. Maybe one as a great example of the discipline that he'd put on the set was... He actually got Steven Seagal to cut off his ever-growing ponytail that was getting longer and longer by films up until this point. Not really Navy regulations. No, not really Navy regulations. Not that, and not that most of what he's doing is up to <laughs> either Navy or cooking regulations. <laughs> it's a kind of a really interesting way that this movie approaches a formula that was known at the time as the die hard on a dot 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 formula this one was uh, known over as like die hard on a boat and as a die hard type movie i think this gets really really close 
in a kind of like Roger Corman, like B level way. Whereas stuff in Die Hard is almost all like done to kind of take at face value. And you're just like, wow, this guy is a real guy. And Bruce Willis's uh, McLean character and how he's surviving this stuff here. There's a, just a little level of appreciation of a kind of a cheesy scenario who Seagal, who's no idea of a Navy officer or a cook for that matter, <laughs> but how he goes and dispatches a truly fascinating rogues gallery uh, collection of oddball espionage criminal miscreants. Well, it looks like Andrew Davis had a much bigger budget this time around. And whereas uh, the package gave kind of an earthiness to the espionage genre, here there's more of a slickness to it. And you know, you're certainly right with the the diehard comparison that that is definitely fitting in with the time this came out and the use of of the ship is really extraordinary and provides a lot of excellent uh, action locations but again and I'll 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 leave him alone after this but uh, it's it, it's so crippled by having Seagal as the lead here. Mm. Uh, he Only because, unlike Above the Law, here you really have potential for what could have been uh, a classic action film. And I know a lot of people believe it is a classic action film, yeah, but I, ha- I have this Seagal problem. <laughs> and we discussed it before, but I, I, I just wonder what would happen if somebody like Bruce Willis... Uh, would have been cast uh, in this in this role. Somebody who you know brought a little more believability and a little more empathy, uh, finding himself in this situation. And while I I think Under Siege ends up being uh, another solid movie, Seagal's presence means for me there's the, there's a ceiling on how good it could be. Hmm. I have a much higher impression on it, and partly is because I Andrew Davis actually squared the circle of of how do you make a really good movie that has Seagal in it. <laughs> now, Above the Law, is it a good movie? I think it's an okay movie with some really nice action sequences that happens to have Seagal in it. But Under Siege is a great movie... And how does it defy doing Seagal? For two really interesting choices. First off, very, very smart, show as little Seagal as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Seagal is away for many, many sections of the movie. And there's great things to look at instead because the rogues gallery of villains is a super fun collection. You have Gary Busey as the executive officer of this ship being his busiest, his just nuttiest, barely coherent wildness. I believe he's in drag at one point in the film. <laughs> yes. And in a moment where he's reading the reports that uh, the, his commanding officer had said about him and said that this guy is not fit to lead. And he literally says, do I look like a guy who's not fit to lead when he still has his dress on? (laughs) But bringing it home 
is a really wonderful example of scenery chewing and scenery owning by Tommy Lee Jones, who comes on the scene as this kind of aging has-been rocker, only to turn out to be a much more uh, dangerous presence halfway through. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones, for me, is absolutely the highlight of the film. He is uh, just having so much fun with this role, and he enjoys keeping people off balance as to whether he's crazy or he has a plan, and sometimes we can't even tell ourselves as an audience. So there's there's a manic energy that he's bringing here that that gives life to the movie. Mm -hmm. And it combines with some of the uh, uh, elements of procedural detail that he did with his character in the package, how you need to not just kill the sailor who's resisting, make sure you kill the guy, the guy next to him as well. That keeps people in line. And the way he orders people around people around, and, and tells them to do this or not, that is, is uh, really cool and seems very, very um, structured until he starts like totally babbling political <laughs> BS to people and causing every all the other villains to look at each other as Scance is like, what's going on here? Right, he's even keeping his fellow terrorists uh, off balance. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and on and on edge and and the way he like quotes different like rock songs as he flips on missiles to be activated or I mean he's never less than completely compelling to watch. And Andrew Davis knows perfectly well when to give the occasional dose of Seagal when he needs to shove someone into a saw in slow motion, say, and when to cut to Gary Busey uh, freaking out a storm or Tommy Lee Jones just owning uh, nearly every scene that he's in. Speaking of uh, shoving someone into something, uh, this movie also has possibly the most awkward attempt to try to bring a sex appeal and a love interest (laughs) into the film. We have a... uh, So we have a Playboy Playmate played by Erica Eleniak who is coming onto the ship along with the fake rock band that uh, Tommy Lee Jones is supposed to be in and she's going to jump out of a cake to surprise uh, the general on his birthday and it's just kind of funny how how blatantly they realize they have this problem of no women on the boat (laughs) and you've got to have the nude scene you've got to have a girl to follow Seagal around and so just this this shoehorning is uh, yeah see now that's stuff yeah. that i like though okay. i like how brazenly <laughs> they bring it up but he she takes a little too many seasickness pills and that's what causes her to pass out through all of it and so it's a really nice moment where Seagal had been um, had brutalized a couple of people just moments before, and he's mm-hmm. searching in this uh, area where the party is being held. And then the cake, the music starts playing, and then she just is dancing topless to an audience of nobody, <laughs> which causes Seagal <laughs> to like bear, run up to her and go, "What are you doing?" Right, right. There, there would be no actual uh, chemistry between the two, but she will follow him around uh, throughout well, the film. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and it's uh, it's really fun because she goes and sort of does a fun commentary of the film, such as saying by saying lines like, I just have one rule. I don't kill people. No, wait. I have two rules. I don't date musicians, <laughs> and I don't kill people. <laughs> 
and she has a really nice line where uh, later in the film she uh, she follows him and he's really surprised because he's facing machine gun fire and she says I know the safest place is right behind you <laughs> <laughs> and that's another thing that Davis does to help um, uh, with Seagal is that Seagal has his basic ego problem and that he has a planet sized one and he holds pretty much everybody in complete contempt um, and it's actually, I think, used to great humor as he's like, as to the extent that he can roll his eyes at Erica Eleniak's attempt at being aghast at the situation. I think it mines a decent amount of, a decent amount of humor to it. And Davis also does nicely in the beginning by, while having him cook, for one thing, he shows some really amazing knife skills in cutting carrots that hint at what his knife skills can do later. But then also he has some really nice banter with the different with the different cooking staff which i feel goes a decent amount away of making him some appear human let's put it that way <laughs> and finally you know super fun touch he has to build a bomb to destroy this uh, a summary nearby and the way they show him making the bomb first off is fun to have erica leniak helping out and secondly, it's also similar to the way he was cooking some uh, cooking the bouillabaisse earlier. <laughs> yes, the so, two the two people one would not expect to have the skills to uh, mm -hmm. build a bomb uh, do so. Uh, but I think what Andrew Davis does as far as credibility for the film uh, is is pretty cool in the sense that he makes it believable that this ship full of Navy seamen and officers could be overcome by this small group of terrorists. Yep. Uh, it, it's something that in lesser hands, you'd be going like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But the uh, geography of the film works that we get to know this ship, the, 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 the use of the locations, where the sailors are, where everyone is on the ship is, is made very clear in you know, action sequences that make sense. Right, like how they weld the door shut mm -hmm. or how they try to go and trick Seagal by, like, flooding the area where the uh, Navy seamen are being held. Um, that's all very un uh, that's all very nicely rendered. And at, at every point you can see where the characters are in relation to each other, both in the macro sense of where they are on the ship, and then when the action sequences are very uh, tr uh, fluid and fascinating just in how the action is wonderfully delivered, both in the martial arts stuff and in the gunplay that's, uh, that's depicted. Mm -hmm. Now, this one is, uh, like I was saying, I think this is a... Uh, very good type of the diehard mold and and it's even kind of interesting in a believe it or not dude in a subtextual way in the kind of way that even diehard is interesting now diehard's subtext is kind of that it's the the ultimate ex-husband movie his uh, wife is using her maiden name and so on and and even like Bruce Willis's outfit, it's an outfit that he could have just been like uh, using to chill out on uh, in the backyard on a, on a weekend or something. So it all so that all ties together to just basically say, oh no, America, John Wayne and Roy, Roy Rogers and Yiffy Kaye, motherfucker, all ties in on that. Uh, this one's a little uh, even has a little bit of that. Because actually, similar to what A Few Good Men, he gets a motley crew of people from all walks of life 
in uh, Elaniac, but then also like some uh, other other crewmen who go and help out. And they're from all different like shapes and sizes and races and ethnicities. Uh, and and I think that was a really cool development. But then also, in a weird way, Tommy Lee Jones's character is taking his character from the package who had this cynicism about the military and he is a, a former a CIA operative who was trying insurrections all over the globe that were that were touched on and then basically he's really really pissed that he got uh, that people were trying to assassinate him but i think that also ties into the fact that he's an old rocker or posing as an old rocker and that the ideas of the days, these ideals that people believe that he's past his time. And I think it's kind of cool how it shows that in a kind of a, a rock and roll way. I think it literally his band's name is the Bail Jumpers, which is, by the way, in a super fun development, are members of the, a lot, many members of the band who showed up in Stony Island, right down to Andrew Davis's brother being the guitarist of the band. That, that's fantastic that his loyalty to his. Uh, friends that keep showing up again and again in his films when it, 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 when you see a lot of his movies in a row is very clear and uh, a lot of fun to just keep seeing the same faces. A- absolutely, like um, you can when you look at like a range of his films, you can be on the lookout for um, uh, uh, Joseph F. Kosala, who is a uh, mustache guy with thick glasses. Uh, and then um, uh, Eddie Bo Smith, a, a, a large African-American gentleman, and, um, and Michael Skews is a big, burly, mustached guy. And they, they show up in a whole number of his films, uh, this particular uh, movie included. And it's, it's always fun to keep a lookout for them. Including his next one, which is by far his most acclaimed. That would be 1993's The Fugitive. Based on the 1960s TV show, which follows renowned Chicago doctor Richard Kimball, played by Harrison Ford, who claims he was framed for his wife's murder by a one-armed man. When the bus taking him to death row crashes in an amazing train sequence, he escapes only to be pursued by a very dedicated U.S. Marshall team led by the formidable Tommy Lee Jones. Well, if I had been watching these films in order, instead of this one being the one I saw first, I would probably say, damn, who would have thought that all this would lead to a masterpiece? Yes. But it has. This movie is magnificent. And not only that, it's smart. It's one of the smartest action movies I've ever seen the way these two characters played by Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones have to play this cat and mouse game. And at no time are we as an audience thinking, 
well, why aren't they doing this? Why isn't he doing this? I mean, you know, really he could uh, get away or catch the guy better if he did this. No, this movie has thought of every contingency and whether you're watching Harrison Ford or watching Tommy Lee Jones, you know you are watching characters who are as smart as the audience. And sometimes even smarter, because time and again, both Richard Kimball and Gerard, the Tommy Lee Jones character, do things that I didn't wasn't even thinking about. But you just go, why do you do that? Oh, that's why you did it. Yeah, and it's it's so it's surprising to find out that the making of this film was actually quite the mess. That this there were so many different uh, script iterations for the film, and that they were continuing to try to finalize the script as they were shooting because yeah. this stuff is is tight. That is a it is amazing. How well this film holds together. They set up uh, Harrison Ford's character as a brilliant surgeon. That's uh, set up from the very beginning. And what he has to do involves skills that surgeons would know, that surgeons would understand. And Harrison Ford, who in recent years, uh, I think we've kind of gotten used to him going through the motions a lot Mm -hmm. in his career i think this may be the 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 last moment of peak harrison ford of the harrison ford we love from star wars from indiana jones and even more dramatic turns in witness and the mosquito coast this is the last time for me, that I think we we see Harrison Ford firing on all cylinders and a great example as to why he's as beloved a movie star as he was. He does so well here as both uh, effectively being, in a way, so similar to uh, John McClane in Die Hard. Not a superhero, somebody who's legitimately desperate, legitimately worn out, and on top of all that, so stricken with grief over the death of his wife, and yet at the same time, he has such a great level of empathy as a doctor, uh, whether it's a sick kid in the hospital, or even the guard in the beginning that he risks his own life to save from the onrushing train. He shows such a winning level of just dedication of helping others, which, by the way, was a staple of the TV show. And that's a case where Andrew Davis and the writers did really right by the show, which would have the main character in episode after episode be in a different town and help people out before he resumes his chase for the one-armed man. So on all these levels, Harrison Ford is just tremendously successful. But honestly, at every level, this film is successful to an extent that I wouldn't just place this as the top, one of the top action films that has ever been made, but I think it might even surpass The Mighty Die Hard as the top of such movies. Now, to be fair, 
we're lucky to live in a world which has Die Hard mm-hmm. and The Fugitive, and people can go and enjoy them both. But my case for The Fugitive would be would work on a couple levels. For one, it's that it is the kind of cheesiness which I described from Under Siege, and also is sort of evident sometimes in Die Hard, like like the one terrorist who can't help stealing candy and stuff like that. But none of that is an evidence in The Fugitive. Fugitive is serious. It takes the plot seriously. And there's a level of dedication to that. You already touched on how there is no need to forgive the characters being dumb. Because they don't. They aren't dumb. They do things in an intelligent way. It's paced beautifully. So often, he's so close to getting caught. But the way he keeps improvising just one bit extra... To get himself out. And the, and the ways that he escapes are done in these superb, like, action set pieces. Such a one involving uh, him crashing an Irish parade. Um, uh, another involving his, like, narrow escape from a hospital. And, of course, his uh, leaping off that gigantic waterfall featuring that iconic dialogue of, I didn't kill my wife. And Lee Jones going, I don't care. <laughs> well, well, that actually is my like one little pet peeve with the film, and and it, it's it's a small thing, but that jump off the dam just is the one moment in the film that struck me as a little unrealistic. That that did not look survivable to me in any circumstance. Hmm. But. That's a small issue. Yeah, and I, I, and honestly, I buy it because mm-hmm. when they when he finally emerges from the water, he's pretty messed up. <laughs> <laughs> but then also, you look at the kind of things that the movie asked for the Richard Kimball character to do, and the stakes are so high because the movie makes it such a point about how the whole system is arranged against him, how thorough is their pursuit how effective is the pursuer and richard kimball not only has to evade capture but he has to somehow go and find his wife's killer it requires the person to do such dramatically inconceivable things that the movie still manages to do plausibly (laughs) it's really amazing and and if that's all this movie would have had going for it it would be a great movie but it also has tommy lee jones Oscar-winning, I think, best performance in a role that could so easily have been a throwaway. It would be so easy to follow Harrison Ford and just cut away on occasion to some FBI agent who's basically there as a threat. But Tommy Lee Jones does so much with his performance. He adds wonderful humor his quick style of delivery is so perfect here his banter with joey pants and his team and then his slow realization that despite having said i don't care he might be chasing an innocent man and you see tommy lee jones matching harrison ford step by step on an acting level and so there's no scene 
that isn't a pleasure because it doesn't matter whether we're watching the pursued or the pursuer. You're in the hands of fantastic characters. Right. Fantastic characters in a setting that does very well by those characters, gives them great dialogue, uh, is paced perfectly, that flows like a, like the dam itself through its uh, two-hour-plus running length and is has been bracketed by two incredible sequences that rival the Nakatomi Praza blowing up. That train derailment is magnificent. Definitely. Just total perfection of of suspense and action. And there's a fight scene at the end which manages to both simultaneously be how real people and real bodies would react to it, but also being very, very extended and becomes a sort of a three or four way confrontation over by the end. In a really nice touch, they even point out that Kimball is suspected of killing a Chicago police officer, so the Chicago police are not necessarily on Kimball's side. Right. The stakes are, are being raised throughout. And uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the parade, and, and that's another great set piece where uh, there, you know, and here's where we're going to go back to our uh, Chicago uh, location uh, geekery because you have this great moment where Jones spots Ford and they have this foot chase that leads into the St. Patrick's Day Parade on the streets of Chicago, which was actually happening. So what they needed to do was create this chase with extras who didn't even know they were in a film. They invaded the parade. Exactly. And where they were running from is the Chicago City Hall, here posing as a a jail where Richard Kimball wants to just meet a potential uh, suspect as part of his quest. And as they run through the parade, which was the real actual parade, you get to see a lot of the local Chicago flavor as they walk down State Street, the main street of our city. The river turned green, yes. as we do every year. Yes, they even do a wonderful joke that's often said by Chicagoans, which is to wit, you know, if you can dye the river green, why can't you dye the river blue in the other 364 <laughs> days so it looks like some real good water? Right. <laughs> There's one thing that, like, shows through in all of Andrew Davis's films up to this point, including The Fugitive, it's this consideration. He looked at each kind of film, and no matter what the source material or even how you can play up the awfulness of the material, and time and time again, uh, Andrew Davis would reject that and just go, well, let's just make this stuff more plausible. Let's just make this stuff more interesting. Let's put in more interesting characters in the background. Let's do find what's interesting in the settings. This level of consideration manages to put like one of the more unique records I've ever seen of a director because he makes the Chuck Norris movie that never uh, had to be that good, and then he makes the two Seagal movies, neither of which... As Seagal has ever even approached in his um, uh, other efforts. But when you take that kind of consideration and thoughtfulness and you apply it to two great actors, 
a great supporting cast, um, a solid budget, and a script with which one of which whose co um, uh, screenwriters was David Twohy, who is another guy who's known for enhancing movies and will be spoiler alert the subject of an upcoming podcast in his own right. But you put these solid ingredients together and Andrew Davis was exactly the right talent with the right to quote taken set of skills at exactly the right moment and leads the fugitive is to, to me a 100% complete triumph of both action movie filmmaking and filmmaking filmmaking well we might disagree on uh the merits of some of his other films but on this one i'm with you al i i was blown away when i first saw this in the theater in 1993 and i was blown away again when i saw it last week yeah and I'm amazed and still finding new cool things in this movie. After the fifth time I saw it, Andrew Davis made a keeper for the ages with this one. Well, let's see if he could keep that momentum going as now we look at his 1996 movie, Chain Reaction. about a group of brilliant University of Chicago scientists led by Morgan Freeman who've discovered a way to harness hydrogen as an energy source. When sabotage causes a major explosion, Keanu Reeves and Rachel Weiss find themselves framed and on the run. What an interesting way to expand on the premises of your earlier films than literally taking things to the atomic level and to the environmental level in this particular movie with um, not just the global intrigue from the package makes a return appearance, but some interesting dynamics are in play with one character who's a fellow scientist with ulterior motives and another um, more slightly more malevolent figure played by Brian Cox in this film. Yeah, I was a little disappointed in this one because it seems like it very consciously is trying to repeat a lot of beats of The Fugitive. In both movies, you have an incident, uh, whether it be a murder or an explosion, that forces innocent people on the run and they know information that is vital to the reason the crimes were committed and they are both pursued by a dogged uh, FBI agent. In this case, one played uh, somewhat less spectacularly uh, by Fred Ward. Keanu Reeves 
is really as bland as can be here. And uh, Rachel Wise. Y- yes. <laughs> uh, he, he, yes, Keanu Reeves no play, playing a, a genius uh, <laughs> uh, inventor uh, who's... <laughs> right. Yeah. To, be, to be somewhat fair, he's playing a machinist. So he might be a very good machinist, and he's not doing too much in terms of trying to explain particle physics or anything like that. However, you're correct in ascertaining it's an attempt to do a fugitive plot. And one of the values of the fugitive, as we talked about, is how the characters are behaving intelligently. And that's not Keanu Reeves' thing, man. (laughs) Keanu Reeves is a dude who can react to things in a in a athletic and physical kind of way, when you have it in speed, he's really good in that particular role. In John Wick, he's really good in stuff that requires him to like move things physically. But for roles where he's supposed to figure things out, you got the wrong guy, man. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, actually, in large sequences in this movie, the action set pieces in particular... He's putting on one hell of a parkour display as he's clambering over railings and and uh, in a scene in the Field Museum, he's walking uh, on the edge of a, a plane that's part of a display here. He's jumping and, and twisting and climbing all over the place. Yeah, the action set pieces are back as well as the non-charismatic uh, leading actor. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a step backwards. Uh, there are some, some cool scenes. I like the scene when he's trying to cross the Chicago River and the bridge is raising and he has to do all kinds of acrobatics to uh, escape uh, notice in a place he cannot escape from. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you have some cool set pieces for Keanu. You've got Morgan Freeman, who is as dependable an actor as you have, doing his Morgan Freeman thing. Not one of his best roles, but the guy makes things work. But it uh, I don't know. For me, it just doesn't come together. A lot of what gets missing is on both, like, the script level and on an acting level, unfortunately, is that pervading sense of intelligence that was so amazing in The Fugitive. We get these various moments where the scapes are not really well explained. Um, parts where Keanu is... Uh, like looks like he's completely trapped and then you next see him wandering around in a completely different location. Uh, they're able to, while on the run, they manage to get to all sorts of areas that are not supposed to be, <laughs> including what's supposed to be an incredibly secure facility mm-hmm. and the different ways that they get out of these predicaments when they are um, explained by Keanu don't again due to both the script and his performance they don't quite hold water <laughs> as you say on freeman he's doing a real dependable job but the story kind of lets lets him down too cuz he does a couple of things that are just straight up dumb including uh having a lack of control of the situation uh way way 
worse than a person in a position should have ever done. <laughs> Even Morgan Freeman needs a script. Yes. So and he lets things <laughs> right. He lets things slide that his character absolutely never should. And what Andrew Davis probably needs at this point is a change of genre to freshen things up a bit. Yeah, he's been covering this similar kind of action ground territory for a whole number of years. But next, in 1998's A Perfect Murder, he takes on a Hitchcock-type murder mystery. Literally. Released in 1998, A Perfect Murder updates Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder as Michael Douglas discovers his young wife, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, is cheating on him with aspiring artist Viggo Mortensen. Douglas sets this elaborate scheme into motion in which he hopes to be able to pull off the perfect murder. The biggest pleasure for me for this movie is Michael Douglas's performance. Uh, we talked about him in our last podcast on, on Rob Reiner uh, for The American President. And between that movie and this movie, I'm kind of having a reappreciation <laughs> for Michael Douglas as, as such a, a, a natural actor. Taking a more villainous role here, uh, you can tell that he is absolutely enjoying this kind of th- th- this kind of cat and mouse game that he's playing with his, his, his cheating wife and her lover and also you're getting real depth to the character he's bringing his a game here and because the script is smart because they're utilizing the best things from their source material you've got for the most part uh, a very strong piece Now, what would you say would be the best thing from their source material? So comparing this to Dial M for Murder, it seems sacrilegious to say that a remake of an Alfred Hitchcock movie might be better than the Hitchcock movie itself. Right. And this is 1998. This is the year of the god-awful Psycho remake. Oh, my God. (laughs) But but the, the, the mistake is don't remake the masterpieces remake the ones that are flawed and i do think having rewatched dial m for murder recently that it is not one of hitchcock's best it's limited uh in a number of ways mainly through its casting where perfect murder has michael douglas at his best uh dial m for murder uh stars ray meland at his usual at at his usual who is not (laughs) a great actor um the original film was shot in 3d and that was uh a great experiment for hitch but it didn't lead to one of his masterpieces. So when we're making a comparison here, I think we're making a comparison between a fine remake and a lesser Hitchcock movie. Yeah, that's commonly criticized when movies are remade. They say, 
why are you remaking the good movies? You should remake the bad ones. And guess what? Dial M for Murder <laughs> is a bad one. It's incredibly limited, as you said, by both by Ray Milland and the 3D camera. The 3D camera was a, just a horrible, gigantic beast to operate. So Hitchcock did just simply did not have the tools at his disposal by using the 3D camera to be able to put the placement um, and direction that he was so effectively able to do with the conventional camera. And it doesn't help that the camera adds an extra dimension to the characters in Dial M for Murder to two. <laughs> <laughs> the characters have very rare in a Hitchcock film have rarely lived up to his description of the actors as cattle as, uh, <laughs> as in dial M for murder, where they are such placeholders for describing the lugubriously labyrinth plot, uh, in, and all the different machinations. There are locksmiths in Chicago, which have not had as extensive discussion of who has what key as what happens in, in Dial M for Murder? Well, I, I didn't dislike the film quite as much as you did the original, I mean. But what I did like about the original that is carried on, I think, is uh, the smartness of the script itself, of the story, which was taken directly from a stage play, which I think also hampered Hitchcock a little bit, having to stick so closely to source material. But here's the thing about the difference between Dial M for murder and a perfect murder is that when you watch Dial M, I at least found all these moments where I saw how Milan's plot could go wrong. I saw him making mistakes. Yeah, I'm not that much of a Sherlock Holmes sleuthy kind of guy. So if, if, if I was able to see it, mm -hmm. anyone can see it. But then one of the things I really appreciated in the remake is Douglas's plan really seems airtight. I mean, he does make a mistake, but it's a subtle mistake. It's a mistake any one of us could have made. So I love that uh, once again, the characters and the audience are on the same page as far as being smart enough to solve the mystery not only were you seeing mistakes from milan's character scheme but the movie was at a suffocating high regard for how wonderfully intricate this plan was and how how much all these angles were thought up by ray milan's character a guy who, frankly, not only cannot convince as someone who would have thought of such a scheme, but who would have landed Grace Kelly in the first place, to be quite <laughs> honest. Well, uh, he was a former tennis pro, so... Yeah, that that's really... He's equally unbelievable. He's more believable as a tennis racket, <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> but there's no decent acting to be found in the original anyway. They don't really express any... Um, particular emotion even in the midst of like what would be a torrid affair is shown in like the most blandest way possible and the and the robert cummings as the lover character might as well be one of the many many lamps that hitchcock puts between the camera and the other characters for all the uh, magnetism that he puts in the story but not only does a perfect murder 
have people behave in a more intelligent manner, but also in a more compelling emotional manner too. The reason the different complications that happen in the story and the different mistakes the different characters make have an emotional content to it. The, the rug is pulled out from you over and over again. And the, and the different double crosses and switchbacks that happen just come from characters who realize what's kind of important to them. Right. And not only uh, is Michael Douglas good, but Viggo Morgensen in a smaller but key role as the lover also gives layers to what he's doing. And there's a wonderful confrontation scene where Douglas and Morganson both reveal what they know about each other. It reminded me of one of my uh, favorite films of this type, which is uh, Sleuth with Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine, which which, uh, is so brilliant at trying to figure out what each character knows. And this movie doesn't quite reach sleuth levels, but I I liked that it was heading in in that direction. Mm, So interesting. uh, Sleuth is obviously it's, it's high praise indeed comparing it to this, to sleuth, which is such a remarkable movie with such a great twisting plot. And, but I think it might be even more common than you, than there might be more things in common than you think, because sleuth is also about ego. And when the main character in sleuth, who causes the scheme to be set in motion, the thing that seems to irritate him as much as the fact of the person having an affair is that it's of a person below his station. Right. <laughs> like, in both cases, the movie have a really interesting social undercurrent, which Andrew Davis is re- shows wonderfully visually, in, both in the just the vast penthouse where the, uh, the couple are located at, and contrasted with the artist who not only lives in a rundown part of uh, Brooklyn, but it seems that almost like the very loft area where he where he lives illegally, by the way, <laughs> is almost not even a complete building in and of itself. It's um because it doesn't look like it has walls, for example, and it looks like it's almost bracketed by the paintings, which is also a really cool detail. How it shows how this person is sort of trapped by his affection towards Gwyneth Paltrow's character. Like, there's even when he does a audio cassette tape, it always features Gwyneth Paltrow's face. And that brings us to uh, a bit of the bad news here for me, which is that in this uh, movie with three characters, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was not up to par for me acting-wise as her co-stars. I think this it would have been better with a, a more formidable leading actress, especially because she is required to also be smart enough to try to figure out the, the various labyrinth plot that's happening. Yes. And, and Paltrow, who has been good. I liked her in Seven. I liked her in The Royal Tannenbaums. Just seems a bit out of her depth here. Paltrow's more, when she delivers an emotional scene, it's kind of more that she's reacting at that particular moment, and it it doesn't quite gel together. Um, It's, honestly, I still put it like eons beyond um, Grace Kelly's um, eternal chump 
of a character in Dial M for Murder. But with every other part of the film, from its visuals to its characterization to its script to the acting of the script has been elevated so dramatically in both senses of the word, it is a bit of a shame to see that she did not up her game to the extent that every other part of the movie is an enhancement on the original Hitchcock right. movie. Uh, uh, and I'll leave this vague because I don't want to go into spoilers on this, but I, yes. I was... I did think the very end left a little to be desired in of itself. I, I don't think it wrapped up in a way that the rest of the film was pointing towards it having earned. The uh, the smartness of the film did not lead to a smart conclusion. Mm. I would go and say that... This movie can be enjoyed in multiple ways, and each way puts a little bit of a different spin on it. If you just see A Perfect Murder by itself, you will have a great time. It is a solid take on a Hitchcockian mystery, a twisted thriller with some really nice emotional content and a really great twist in terms of, of, of both fate and design in it that every that anyone can enjoy by itself. There's also an alternate ending that is available on the DVD, which to my mind, it takes a different tenor to it. It takes a character and presents them in a slightly different light, which um, you might be, might find better, might find not as good as the original, but to me, I enjoy because they provides a nice symmetry because the way mm -hmm. that person behaves is sort of exactly how another character was behaving earlier in the movie. So it wraps things up at the both endpoints in a very in a way that I find really enjoyable. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think it solved the problem of the ending for me. The alternate ending is very similar mm -hmm. to the actual ending, but that is something uh, you will all need to discover yourselves as you watch the film. Right, and I would say, though, that the best way, in my opinion, the best way to enjoy this film is to take a look at Dial M for Murder first. You know, Brad, how like you made the comment on like how this was the first uh, Chuck Norris movie you saw and mm -hmm. the first... I think if the first of the two you had seen is a perfect murder, it's a dr quite a different experience because when you see the raw material of what happens in Dial M for Murder, a great majority of it is used. In the, in the remake, mm -hmm. the but every one of those moments is given and is given such a great spin and such a great twist to make the story more interesting and more compelling and dramatic and pulls you in so much more than in the first one. There's so much more is enhanced on it. It's one thing to try in its own miraculous way, to make an interesting cop story with Chuck Norris as a gaping void in the center. That's one particular skill. But to take a Hitchcock movie, albeit a lesser one, and make it so much better. Next to your fire. Hey, let's stand next to your fire. Whoa, 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 let's stand next to your fire. Whoa
Arnold Schwarzenegger plays an L.A. fireman seeking revenge when his wife and son are killed in a terrorist bombing by a Colombian drug lord known as El Lobo. Arnold takes matters into his own hands by single-handedly traveling to Colombia to seek justice for his family. Now, you were complaining earlier about, hey, Al, do we really need to make action movies with this kind of consideration? Shouldn't action movies sometimes be more entertaining with their bad or embrace the cheesy parts of it? Here, I think in Collateral Damage, your theory is borne out kind of the most. Unlike like Chuck Norris, who's a normal, non-acting-looking guy who has some skills, or Seagal, who is a really tall, hulking, excessively sweaty guy, <laughs> but still a guy, Arnold doesn't really come across as a normal human being, which is not his strength, to say the least. He is really great as some kind of icon of muscle power between his ridiculously overbuilt frame and his accent he's just this kind of walking sort of cartoon in a way right he's and that's usually fine in schwarzenegger films but here he's trying to play an everyday joe uh he's attempting to act in a more dramatic way than we're used to Arnold attempting to act in. Yes. And he, he doesn't quite hit the mark. Uh, he has to show a lot of grief. Yeah. Uh, after, after his, his family's killed by making a snarl on his face <laughs> that makes, he looks like he's getting a particularly awful, uh, medical exam right? <laughs> <laughs> or turning into a werewolf or something like <laughs> something like that. Seems right. to cross his it, face. It, it, it's an attempt, but not, not one that he, he can succeed at. Um, uh, <laughs> so what, what we end up with is this strange, combination of a standard Arnold Schwarzenegger superhero movie where he's doing superheroic things and a film that keeps nudging us in the direction that it's supposed to be more realistic. Yeah, the action and the realistic depiction becomes across as cross purposes in this film, which is a, a bit of a, a bit of a shame. Arnold is the mostly the worst part of every scene where he's in, where if you had an, a real actor in those roles, it would have been enhanced so much. But I, I don't want to be as critical of Arnold as I, I am of uh, Seagal and Norris, because in the right role, uh, Schwarzenegger's actually pretty awesome. You, you, you get a Terminator film, you get a Total Recall, uh, even something like Twins. He, he's got charisma, he's got charm, but he needs to be utilized in his exact niche or it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And a credit to him to try to expand on on his uh, on these roles in different points ac across his career. I will say he does a considerably better job in acting, and a film that he rec more recently did called Maggie, hmm. a very unique take on the uh, zombie genre. And here, there is I think a lot to like about the uh, movie and how Andrew Davis gets international because he sketches out a lot of 
the procedural issues about how difficult it is is to get into the country and how the country is rife with political strife, not just between ruling parties and revolutionaries, but through it all is uh, is coursing through the drug trade. That part is handled really nicely until, of all things, the supporting cast kind of lets him down. For one thing... You have a drug dealer played by John Leguizamo. And honestly, there's no moment of his that is as entertaining as just watching him just get shot to death. So, which actually, luckily enough, manages to keep him from talking. <laughs> his, his, his scenes are mercifully brief. Uh, as is uh, John Turturro, who has another walk-on. And he's a, a less annoying actor, but the the, the actors are, are kind of used in the uh, like uh, extended cameos, so it, it's kind of strange to see you know people just show up and 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 disappear. Elias Codius does fairly okay though; he's all right as a potentially conflicted um uh, um agent who sort of helps uh, Arnold, but he has reasons of his own. Yes, he can do sleazy, that guy. He's, <laughs> he's, he's definitely got that note uh, no, that note covered. Mm-hmm. Some interesting behind-the-scenes uh, issues with this film is that it was supposed to be released uh, very soon after 9-11, and yeah. the big theme of the film is terrorism, in this case, from uh, Colombian drug cartels. But having being so close to 9-11, this, this topic was, uh, was very problematic for the, for the studios with the nerves uh, still so frayed. So yeah. it was, uh, the release was delayed until uh, early 2002. And it, it's still kind of eerie knowing when it came out to see this, this kind of discussion on terrorism in the context of such a popcorn movie. For sure. And it's even eerier when we are going to come to realize this is actually not the first time that Andrew Davis is going to have his action subject have real-life events catch up to it. But in this one, it's, it was a very, very touchy, obviously a very, very touchy subject. And I wonder if some of the attempts at the end of the film to make things into more of a unbelievable action movie mold weren't kind of done to reflect the uh, to make things more abstract and less realistic for that very purpose right and also schwarzenegger's character being a fireman makes us think of uh, first responders yeah and uh, kind of fits into this attempt at a different kind of schwarzenegger role because we're supposed to believe that his fireman skills will help him bring down all these uh, terrorists. But in fact, it was the end of an era because this is the last film Schwarzenegger did before uh, he was elected governor. So we did not see Arnold Schwarzenegger on screen for quite some time after this. Yeah, it turns out that his uh, uh, if he wanted future roles to like reflect reality, he would uh, try to take the role of the dead in being Charlie. <laughs> Which, to be fair... Would have made the movie more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. 
But this actually uh, ties into Andrew Davis's career as well, because because he goes and tries a whole different style in his next film, Holes, in two thousand three. Don't say nothing. Uh, in a very much a change of pace, it's a kid's tale about a juvenile detention camp in a desert run by some highly questionable characters who force the kids to dig holes to build character. Um, but a series of flashbacks reveals a very strange history that connects a number of the characters and calls motivations into question. Yeah, I had kind of a strange reaction to this one. It follows the beats of a rolled doll type uh, twisted kid's tale pretty well. Uh, Andrew Davis has a really nice visual sense on how to portray both this, uh, this camp with all these uh, outcast kids yes. and the eccentric characters uh, running the camp. And then uh, there's a pretty involve flashback structure to bring plot elements in the history of that area together. But I didn't really connect. I'm not sure why. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe it was Shia LaBeouf as the lead. I you know, he wasn't being as obnoxious as he would end up being in later films, but he also wasn't particularly endearing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, good Lord. Sometimes like, especially while watching this movie, I, just thought that it was some sort of challenge that Andrew Davis put up for himself to take some gaping, non-charismatic presence and make it the center and (laughs) and see if you can make it interesting. Here, I think it, he succeeds quite admirably. I, I like it a heck of a lot more than you did. And I think maybe ironically part of it is because it, I started off really not liking it because it was done in a kids-like, whimsically not attempting to be believable way about how his family is trying to invent a way of preventing odor from sneakers, featuring his dad played by Henry Winkler. And it's depicted in this kind of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory goofy fable that unfortunately for me got a little too close to Rob Reiner's North for (laughs) comfort. When you start off a movie thinking, uh, what is this shit? (laughs) That's not the really good foot to to start it. But once you get to the flashbacks, when he, after he gets to the camp and you get all these interconnecting stories, some that have taken place hundreds of years in the past and look at those stories and seeing how the script takes these stories and has them interweave on themselves where where events and characters from one story in the distant past become incredibly relevant in the future, I just found myself incredibly captivated by that. I, I think Davis did a really nice job of both 
pacing this stuff out very, very nicely. He also seems to be so dedicated to throwing every creative uh, directorial filmmaking move in the kitchen sink in showing this. Like, just the flashbacks are shown in a different way. One's done in a CPO tone way. Some things are filmed in this very, very slow kind of stutter motion that looks akin to, like, what some of the scenes from uh, Saving Private Ryan's first 10 minutes have. And there's different looks at the landscape done from a gigantic God's eye height where you see these hundreds of holes that are, like, pockmarking the entire landscape. And in the performance, I think he gets back into the kids' version of what he did with his earlier films, where the kids all have these distinct kind of personalities. Even when they don't have a lot of lines to say, you can readily identify them and know how things react, which was a very charming fe uh, feature of what he did with the police in Code of Silence. I think he did in a kids-like vein in this one. And some of the unexpected villains in both the flashbacks and the present day are uh, are really well rendered on the performance level. Sigourney Weaver, I think, does quite nicely here as a, as a, um, a character with some shady motives. And there's a very, very wonderful turn in a flashback sequence by with Dulé Hill and Patricia Arquette as people who were settling in the Old West who engage in an interracial relationship. And for a movie that was made in 2003, it's actually really, really progressive for giving this kind of a message, particularly, especially in a kid's film. Yeah, particularly because it's a kid's film. And I wish we had more of the flashbacks because I found the flashback characters and story more engaging than a lot of, of the present-day ones. Uh, and I think maybe the big difference in our reactions has to do with uh, what we thought about the kids and as, as, as a group, really, I, I didn't think any one of them were this, were, were a deal breaker, so to speak, but I did think they were all types and, hmm. you know, may, maybe if, if I, if I was of the age group that the movie is geared for, which is kind of older kids, probably uh, 11, 12, 13 years old, right? Uh, uh, maybe I wouldn't have minded that so much, but as each kid was introduced, I kind of got that sinking feeling about, oh, I, I know I've seen this this type before. Here, oh, okay. here we go again. And you know, you, you, and then you have uh, some scenery chewing from John Voight. Uh, yes, who, uh, that is the... is a, yes, that is a significant mistake. Um, John Voight like should have been left on the cutting room floor. And by that, I mean his body <laughs> because th this role is like, he was watching the rushes for his bulgy eyed Cajun performance from Anaconda. And it goes, I don't know if the audience got it. <laughs> I'm going to be a bow legged, perpetually sneering seed chewing goofy yokel maniac in this one yeah it's really hard to concentrate on anyone else when uh, when john voight is doing his thing he's doing what that character is supposed to be but the problem is that the rest of the movie is kind of inconsistent 
hmm. with that kind of characterization. Oh, with him, with his character, yes. right? He's on a mm-hmm. total right. He's on a totally different planet than what what is happening through the rest of the movie, whether the flashbacks or the present day stuff. Right. Um, There's a lot being thrown at us, and it's like we're getting the good thrown at us, and the not so good, and this kind of stew of stories and moments and styles yeah and for me they're 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 not congealing they're Mm. just kind of sitting there on their left to fend for themselves i see (laughs) okay um i think it doesn't on top of everything that he does terribly on that performance which it's it's really unconscionable because it is a super babies baby geniuses two level Atrocious performance. Oscar winner John Voight. Oscar winner <laughs> Oscar winner John Voight. Okay, get this. If Chuck Norris was in that movie, <laughs> it would be a better movie. That's how bad it is. And not even in a, in a pleasant, so bad it's good way. It's a more like the, what the F am I, wa- why am I watching this movie if this guy's on the screen broadcast at me? And it doesn't help that a very similar character in the camp is played by Tim Blake Nelson, and he actually does fit much better. He's doing the same thing, in effect, but much, much better. Right, well, he's playing good cop to uh, yeah. to Voight's bad cop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good cop in turn to, as opposed it's to poor... dumb cop. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, it's uh, right. Good cop, poorly acted cop. <laughs> um, <laughs> but all this, I think all this would have been uh, fine if we had some of the kids that we really wanted to root for, but I just couldn't find that in this film mm-hmm. and me i didn't i can't go so far as to say i was really out rooting for the kids um so much as i was rooting for this story because sometimes you really enjoy a world that a movie creates right and i felt that davis was successfully creating a multi-world in akin to like how um the guy from slaughterhouse five is unstuck in time mm-hmm. and things from the past and the present uh, connected in such interesting and potentially like insightful ways. Like, for example, one about like how people profit from strife to just take one kind of example of, of things to, it leads to things to think about that not only are make the movie cool to me in itself, but it also helps for me that it reminds me of a similar effect done in a John Sayles' Lone Star, which I think is one of the five greatest films of all time. And partly for that very mm-hmm. reason. So maybe I'm just wow. responsive to the kind of things that Holes is doing well that I dismiss the stuff, including like the kid types that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm able to push those aside more. Well, well a Lone Star is a magnificent film. I, I didn't think of it once while watching this one, but okay, uh, there yeah. you go. I, I do agree, though, that there's a, it's visually striking. And just the image of all these holes in the desert mm-hmm. uh, is done in a way that will stick with you. Exactly, exactly. So... Really well, nicely done, Andrew Davis. And and um, uh, if he was to go and make more kids movies, there's a that would have been an interesting direction. But instead, but instead, <laughs> he goes back to action with 2006's The Guardian, which is unfortunately Davis's most recent film. Stripes, but you know he's clean. 
It stars Kevin Costner as a heroic Coast Guard rescue swimmer who must grapple with the with growing older when every mission is a matter of life or death. He's transferred to a training academy and where he takes the arrogant hotshot played by Ashton Kutcher under his wing to see if he has the character and heroism to take on the dangerous waves. Is there anything more dangerous than trying to make an action hero out of Ashton Kutcher? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ashton Kutcher is uh, attempting to do the Tom Cruise role here. Very where, much so. That's a great point. Right. And he does not have the chops for it. Kevin Costner is attempting uh, the mentor role and has the t- the chops but uh chooses not to use them because Kevin Costner is in his sleepwalking through his career phase at this point. Now, you've got some striking action scenes here because yes. we're dealing with these Coast Guard rescuers diving from helicopters into the raging waters to rescue these victims and there's something visually exciting about it, but it becomes less visually exciting about the 15th or 16th time the same scenario mm. is run. And th- there, there seems to be only so many variations <laughs> on how a water rescue can look. <laughs> so it, it, the, the film might have been better off having fewer rather than so many. <laughs> If you think the finest thing that movies can do is provide an action montage of people training, this very well might be your movie. Because the strongest thing that it does is find just all these creative things of do of how do you get these guys to be in swimming shape? Um, at least that's how I responded to uh, to it the most. Because there's all sorts of parts of their training regiment I found pretty un- unique in how they put things together, such as there's one point where um, a person is supposed to be uh, practicing how to tread water, and then one of his um, uh, um, instructors just playing out attacks him. <laughs> right. <laughs> just attacks him, and it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and you're just wondering, like, what the heck? Like, it's, uh, it must really not like the guy. <laughs> right. But it turns out that is part of the training, is because you're going to be trained to unexpected things which put you in a phenomenally discomforting position. And how do you, the ultimate thing for a swimmer in that position is to the survival instinct to do what is necessary. And there was a, it ties into a very, Interesting moment in the beginning where you see a successful rescue by Costner's character, and part of the reason he's successful is he sees uh, uh, one of the people he needs to rescue is behaving frantic, understandably so, but he's so putting the mission in jeopardy that the best thing Costner could do is punch the hell of his lights out. Right, right. <laughs> Th- this movie has a weird structure. It's <laughs> yes, It yes. starts out with this quick series of Costner in action 
doing his water rescue thing. And uh, something goes wrong, and he's sent where he doesn't want to go, which is to train these young kids to uh, be the next generation of uh, Coast Guard rescuers. And I expected this sequence to last for a bit of the film, but I was shocked at how long they spend on the basic training stuff. We're following basic training in such detail and maybe too much detail. I don't know. There there got to be a point where it was like, okay, let's get on to something. I completely, the thing is, (laughs) the thing is, Brad, I completely see what you're saying. And a large reason about it and the most surprising thing that I was not expecting from this film is how a previous strength of Andrew Davis was not evident. He was so he was so good at being able to take groups of people of organizations, mafia people or cops or people in the military and just being able to sketch these interesting not even necessarily personalities but interesting directions or ways they react to things. And here you have a whole crew of different uh, people of different uh, races, ethnicities. And there's even a woman as part of the cadet squad who to a person, Ashton Kutcher included, evince no personality whatsoever. So I can totally see how someone like looking at anonymous cadet number 4624, which I believe they even even address themselves sometimes Mm -hmm. that way is engaging in in the sixth version of a of a training montage and you're going why should i care so i see that i personally i think i kind of more respond to just the the sheer innovation of all the different ways that they're trying to test these people such as for example moving a brick on the surface of the pool right and another case they're trying to hold up all the whole group is trying to hold up a platform while more and more weight gets put on it. And there's even a really weird hazing where a guy is getting sprayed with water while yelling out the um, uh, chant at the top of his lungs and pouring a, a jug of a water cooler <laughs> bottle on his head. Which, honestly, maybe the mere novelty of it is, is something that I was attracted by just watching the procedure. Well, one of the the reasons for that novelty is that we're used to a lot of basic training montages from other branches of the military, you know, whether it be uh, films like An Officer and a Gentleman for the Navy or Full Metal Jacket. Uh, We're so used to a a certain uh, consistency in, in basic training, but because what these divers are doing for the Coast Guard is so different from other kinds of basic trainings. You do get at least the novelty, as you put it, of different kind of training. Mm -hmm. I just think it goes on way too long and ceases to be interesting after a certain point. Mm Mm-hmm. I, yeah, and I, I'm totally see where you, I totally see where you're coming from. I mean, I even respond to the ex, to the procedures that happen in when there are rescues on the water because there's different details upon how you have to face the waves or uh, different ways that a boat capsizes. That for whatever reason, I just like find just all really really fascinating. And but I completely acknowledge that what's not fascinating, for example, is even includes Kevin Costner's character. 
Yeah, he, boy, does not come across as someone who gives a real rat's ass about whether any of these cadets succeed or not. Right, he's not where he wants to be because he wants to be the hero. And and this is Costner at his most heavenly saintly role yeah. will, who who will sacrifice anything for his duty he's played around with the the boy scout persona the gary cooper thing right that worked so well early in his career but this kind of material for from from costner is very stale at this point. Right. All of his like advice that he tells the cadets is delivered in such a manner that if he uh, appeared as a ghostly Jedi presence and then imparted these words of wisdom and then disappeared back into the ether, it would not be any less unconvincing than what he ha- how he actually behaves in here. And his level of ultimate sacrifice is delivered in such an overwrought yet completely by the numbers expected way by the end that it actually does remind me of um, a great take on Star Wars called Hardware Wars, which does a parody of Obi-Wan going, uh, telling guys, no, no, I'll be all right fighting Vader. And everyone instead just dismisses like, oh, fine, martyr, go ahead, you martyr. <laughs> that sentiment was reeling really hard for me by the end of, by the end of this movie. Right, which... because we leave basic training with, with Ashton Kutcher now as a full-fledged uh, diver having fulfilled his own hero's journey as yeah. shown by a million Tom Cruise movies. Right. And, uh, and diving alongside... Costner, which is weird because they weren't supposed to even be in the same uh, right vicinity. <laughs> right, creativity shown in so many other movies is so lost by the last fifteen minutes of this movie because you could get like a connect the dots movie plot involving three dots to explain the ending. You'll see. You will see it coming from a nautical mile away. <laughs> um, and ultimately, unfortunately, and this is kind of an example of like the ultimate spoiler for this movie. Um, there is a there is a reason. Before we get to that specific reason, I do want to say that uh, his use of exploring the water is done visually really wonderfully. Every capsized ship and every swimming rescue and a very significant accident in the beginning is done tremendously well. And that dramatic moment at the end, however hokey, has a swirling camera, which must have been a hell of a lot complicated to do, uh, whether it's through CGI, real rain effects, real water effects, or what have you. That stuff, and I think the procedure, is done really well. But ultimately, what fails the movie is this spoiler, which is like, if you want to get any enjoyment out of The Guardian, as far as I'm concerned, just skip the next 60 seconds. It, at the end, is clearly endorsed 100% by the Coast Guard. When you're endorsed by an organization to that level, every flaw of the movie is explained. The bland characters, which could be every potential recruit... Mm-hmm. The fact that there's no criticism of the organization whatsoever and everyone must be acting at their professional best to just be the best that they could be 
and the dramatic suffocation that results comes from the fact that ultimately we're watching a propaganda piece. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. That uh, in, but I don't think it's that much of a spoiler because I think if you sit down and watch it, you're gonna pretty much get that impression right off the bat. Mm. Ultimately, maybe your um, enjoyment, if your eyes start rolling in the back of your head at the plot machinations of the Guardian, that might be the best moment to check out, actually, <laughs> and uh, and take a look at something else. To which I have to just tie in to just say, it is a shame that there hasn't been anything else from Andrew Davis since 2006. It's a long time. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I don't know what what happened. Yeah, well, I don't the, know. The, the Guardian did no business. I don't remember it coming out when it came okay. out. I, I remember noticing on dvd that oh there's another andrew davis movie but uh okay yeah. gotcha over the years he has uh andrew davis has said that he had was different trying out different projects and to get different projects off the ground obviously none has been forthcoming over um now over a decade but in 2013, he was mentioning interest in trying to make a kind of modern-day pirate movie, searching for lost gold, but over in the deltas near the New Orleans area. And that's interesting, both in the fact that it ties into the maybe he picked up, still has some nautical interest in what he was able to show in The Guardian, but is an interesting take of an adventure, I think. And, you know, maybe it's also because this is a person who has done action so well, but the action these days, the majority of it is now done in a CGI kind of realm. And so is The Guardian, which I think was to its detriment. Hmm. I think he did effectively enough on, on The Guardian, but the kind of action where he excelled whether like small scale, hand to hand, the gunplay, mm -hmm. uh, and even in the giant explosive effects, were delivered so well in a practical kind of level that maybe that very kind of maybe that very kind of action filmmaking has just fallen a little out of favor, and people see more dollar signs in the cost there that they could have put in on a computer. Maybe maybe that's it. Yes, the Fast and the Furious has taken over the genre. It, exactly, exactly. When you have cars that are able to like jump across the, the roofs of buildings and so on, who needs to make a train derailment look realistic <laughs> if that is the thing that sells uh, the big money? Yeah. So, but it is a to me, yes, it's a gigantic shame that he does not have the support to go and make the to go and make films because. I can't not think of a single film that we talked about which has not been better because it has had Andrew Davis at the helm. And this is a person who has so consistently been not just been able to like put in uh, exceptional qualities to good material, but has actually been able to make decent and interesting <laughs> qualities out of pure, unadulterated crap <laughs> source material over and over and over again. But honestly, I'm very amazed by a guy who can both make Seagal 
and Hitchcock take these two and make both better. That's a remarkable kind of filmmaking talent and one that I think is something we can stand to see a lot more of in the film world these days. Right. Well, while I, I can't share your enthusiasm for his body of work as a whole, I also can't dismiss a guy who made a movie as great as The Fugitive. Mm-hmm. And if nothing else, and I think he's got other quality works, A Perfect Murder, yep. Stony Island, mm-hmm. and various moments from other films, but for me, uh, Andrew, Andrew Davis is a guy with a masterpiece, and that's one more masterpiece than a lot of other directors have. To be sure, to be sure. Well, guys, I hope that you enjoyed our look at an action director. I know that, uh, uh, Kurosawa aside, uh, <laughs> doing action uh, filmmakers is not something that the Director's Club is necessarily known for, but I feel that like his particular ability and the kind of things that he does in his films is as worth a decent look as some of the work of people who are widely regarded as film legends. I hope you guys agree, but if you uh, agree or don't agree or have some other suggestions for underserved uh, filmmakers, feel free to send an email our way at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, over on Facebook at Directors Club Podcast site, and over on Twitter at DC Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys, and hope to catch you on the next episode of the Directors Club. And this time, we have a really big hitter coming on up. See you then. The thing about Seagal is, is if, you, if you really like how movies can be awful and how certain things about Hollywood can be awful, you really should go and follow Seagal more, man. <laughs> like, the, the way that this guy is appalling is spectacular because he does it in so many ways. Like, the dude, like, has a collection of energy drinks, for example. And one of the funniest things online is a site that goes and talks about one person's attempt to drink two different flavors of it. And the descriptions are wonderful. One, one sentence will always haunt me is that he describes it as drinking a liquid ashtray. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, what else could you say about a guy who <laughs> goes and like hooks up with Kelly LeBrock after his movie Steven Seagal is hard to kill. And then he they turns out they break up because he decided to start sleeping with their 16-year-old babysitter instead. I mean, just class, class act all the way.
But but one of the things for Seagal that I find particularly appalling that I wanted to bring up for you is he wants to be a burgeoning rock star. Oh, no. He's had a band that's played the House of Blues. And in the movie, which he co-wrote, Fire Down Below, there's a scene where Seagal goes on stage and does the Elvis move. He picks up a guitar and he starts strumming and the camera pans to show all these people nodding in appreciation of this guy's uh, guitar power, including Randy Travis. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that to me is like the absolute. Oh my God! Nothing in um, nothing in the on deadly ground. Even as a viral message, is as self-serving as literally writing a scene where real country stars are nodding in approval to you. I you asshole! I can only imagine his musical abilities are somewhere in line with his acting abilities. <laughs> They're not great, but you can actually see that I believe on a YouTube of his appearance on Saturday Night Live, which, by the way, Lorne Michaels has also said. Worst guest host ever from a show that's had Andrew Dice Clay, mind you. And Nancy Kerrigan. And Nancy Kerrigan. There you go. 